Good evening, and it's good to be with you for our Bible study as we go through the book of Job. And if you have your Bibles with you, please turn with me to Job chapter 2. We're going to read from verse 11. Job 2, verse 11. When Job's three friends, Eliphath, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuhite, and Zophar, the Namathite, heard about all the troubles that had come upon him, they set out from their homes and met together by arrangement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. Let's just pray. Father, we thank you again for your presence with us this evening, and we thank you that we have this book of Job preserved for us, that we might learn, yes, about ourselves, but also about you. So, our Father, just guide us now through these verses as we come to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, this short section of Job, um, I've titled it with just one word, and the one word is friends. We don't know much about Job's lineage. What we do know is that he lived in the land of Uz. Back in Job chapter 1 verse 1, we read, In the land of Uz there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. We learn a little bit about the land of Uz from other parts of Scripture. There's a verse in Lamentations 4 verse 21. Rejoice and be glad, daughter Edom, you who live in the land of Uz. Here in Job 2, verse 11, we are now going to be introduced to three of Job's friends. When Job's three friends, Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuhite, and Sophar, the Namathite, heard about all the troubles that, he had come up, that had come upon him, they set out from their homes and met together by arrangement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. These three friends, first one, Eliphaz, the Temanite. In Genesis 36, we have the account of the descendants of Esau, and in verse 4 of that chapter, we have a reference to the name Eliphaz. Ada bore Eliphaz to Esau. This is not necessarily the Eliphaz, who is a friend of Job's, but we know from this that it is an Edomite family name. Later on in Genesis 36, we read in verse 34, when Jobad died, Husham from the land of Temanites succeeded him as king. So from this, we know that Temanites is a place in Edom. So Eliphaz was probably an Edomite of the lineage of Esau. What about Bildad the Shuhite? Well, the name Bildad doesn't appear anywhere other than here in Job. But in Genesis 25 verse 2, Shuha is a son of Abraham's concubine. So this could be part of Bildad's lineage. Zophar, the Namathite, well, he's not mentioned anywhere other than in Job. But in Genesis 4.22, we read this. Tublacan's sister was called Neymar, 
And in Joshua 15, verse 41, we have a town named Namor. So, there could be a connection here. But as you can see, we don't know a lot about his friends. But we will get to know them as we hear what they have to say. The lack of information that we have about where Job came from and who his family were tells us that we only need to know about Job himself. This is the importance of this book of Job. The lack of information about Job's friends means that we get to know them by what they say and by how they act. So we get to know them here in the book of Job. Now the Lord is not impressed by our family ties, our nationality, worldly status, or any other outward signs that people look for if they want to know who we really are. The Lord, on the other hand, is interested in what he sees as he looks at our hearts, and there he sees who we really are. I was reminded of the words of Paul the Apostle to the church in Galatia. This is what he said in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28 to 29. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. As a believer, this is our heritage and our legacy. That's what we hear in these words. And I want you to remember that last little bit in, in that passage. Then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What did these three friends see if they looked at Job? Or when they looked at Job? Well, will they see Job as God sees him? We're going to find out. But before we do, I want us to take these few moments just to consider two questions that we can take away with us this evening that we can think about. These are the two questions. What do other people see when they look at me? The other question, how do I see other people? Well, with those two things in mind, let's go back to our text and go to the second part of verse 11 of Job 2. They heard about all the troubles that had come upon him. They set out from their homes and met together by arrangement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. You see, they met together. They met with a purpose. Their purpose was twofold. It was to sympathize with Job and also to comfort him. Now, we don't know how long it was before they knew about Job's condition. They didn't have Facebook. They needed to contact each other to plan for the trip. They couldn't just text each other. We don't know how far apart they live from each other and we don't know how far away Job lived from them. And they didn't have the luxury of a car to travel around. What they did was commendable. You see, we've got to realise that these are true friends. These are dependable friends. These are friends who are prepared to put themselves out for their friend, Job. 
Now, as we read the text, it's very easy for us to forget that a great deal of time would have passed between verse 11 and verse 12. It could have been months or even years. But the thing to remember is that all this time, Job was suffering. Let me come to verse 12. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. You know, it's little wonder that even from a distance, they could see how much Job had changed. There was just enough of him for them to be able to recognize him. They were shocked and they were horrified. You know what's going to be more shocking to them and is also shocking to us? That is that God has allowed this to happen. Let's go back to Job 1, verse 12. The Lord said to Satan, Very well then, everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. At the end of that, Job was faithful to God. And then we have that second event that we read about that took place in heaven. Job 2, verse 6, The Lord said to Satan, Very well then, he is in your hands, but you must spare his life. So the question is why, and this question why, we will return to time and time again as we go through this book of Job. But for the moment, we don't always know why. But we know that God does sometimes allow those who he calls his children. He allows them to suffer. And the fact is that he here has allowed Satan to do this to Job. And what it shows us is that God is greater than Satan. And this is something that we need to understand. We are seeing the power of God, a power which is greater than the power of Satan. God in his greatness was allowing Job to suffer. God in his greatness allowed his son to suffer. Throughout Job's suffering, the Lord was with him. He didn't forsake Job, and he doesn't forsake us. But when Jesus suffered, Remember that he cried out from the cross, Eli, Eli, Lamach, Sabathani. And we're told that that means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why did God allow his son to suffer? Well, we turn to probably the most well-known verse in the Bible, John 3.16, and we have the answer. For God so loved the world, that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And this act shows us that God is greater than Satan. Jesus died, but Jesus rose again the third day, and he rose the victor, the victor over sin, over death, and over Satan. Why do we suffer? Well, the truth is we 
don't always know why. Job's friends don't know why God is allowing Job to suffer. Job himself doesn't know why God is allowing him to suffer. How long will Job have to suffer? The answer is, and I say this with great reverence, because sometimes this phrase is used in the wrong context and in the wrong way. But how long will it be? And why are these things happening? The truth is, it's God only. Who knows? So we come to Job verse 12, or the second part of verse 12. They began to weep aloud, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. You see, these friends are mourning for Job, but it's as if they see him as a dead man. And when we come to verse 13, we read it, Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. Well, you know, this is a good start. Sometime or other, most of us will have done this for a friend or a family member. So Job's friends sit quietly and wait with him. We're told they sit in silence for seven days and seven nights. But you know, I wonder how silent they were. What we know is that they did not speak to Job during all this time. And the reason was because they saw how great he was suffering. I wonder if during that time they spoke to each other. We don't know for certain. But if they were, would they be ignoring Job and leaving him to feel the loneliness even more than he did when they were not there? Did they unintentionally build a gulf between Job and themselves by not talking to him? Here's a thought. If you're in hospital as a patient or a visitor, at this time, have a look around. You might see a group of friends and family sitting around a bed. Now, of course, this would be pre-COVID with these friends and family sitting around the bed and they are engaged in constant conversation with each other as they totally ignore the person in the bed now thankfully this usually only happens when the patient in the bed is beginning to feel much better but in Job's case he's suffering he's in agony he's fully aware of what is going on around him and if they are talking to each other and not to him, imagine how he would be feeling. Notice that in our text, it is Job who speaks first. But here's a question for you. Who is Job speaking to? Well, if you know anything about Shakespeare or you're familiar with Shakespeare's characters, sometimes those characters will be speaking to themselves. Now, the term used to describe this is a soliloquy. That's when they are not speaking to anybody in particular other than speaking to themselves. But we can all hear what they're saying. So what is going on in Job's mind at this time? We can only imagine, but I'm sure he's racked with physical pain and discomfort. We know that for a fact. And his thoughts 
probably would have been here, there and everywhere. And he might have been thinking about his state, how things got to be like this, thinking what are his friends thinking, why are they here, what can they do to help me, who can help me. Now all 26 verses of Job chapter 3 are about Job searching for answers and about Job looking for conclusions as he begins to pour out his heart in an audible conversation with himself as his three friends sit and listen. As they listen, they are forming opinions and assumptions. That's what we do as people. And they're just like us. They're listening to Job. They're hearing the words that are coming from his mouth. They are forming their own opinions and their own assumptions about what is happening to Job. Who are they? Well, we understand that these are the wisest of the wise men of their day. But how wise is their wisdom? Well, we'll find out in the next 40 chapters of Job. You know, all that we have looked at so far is what we might call groundwork. Groundwork that will enable us to understand that what is happening here has happened as the result of an accusation made by Satan and made directly against God, questioning the worthiness of God. Is he worthy to be able to accept the worship of those who he calls his children. This is the hub of the message of Job. What are we learning here? What are we about to learn? What will we take with us when we come away from this book of Job? Well, a lot of things. But remember these. Remember, it's not because we are rewarded by God that we worship him. It is that we are rescued by God, which is making him worthy of our worship. Let me say that again, because we need to carry this with us as we go through this book of Job. It's not because we are rewarded by God that we worship him. It is that we are rescued by God making him worthy of our worship. You know, we have the gospel. What is the gospel? I'll tell you what it isn't. It's not what some call a prosperity gospel. What we have is a posterity gospel. We're not rewarded for being good. But we are preserved as heirs with Christ through what he has done for us. As we draw to a close this evening, that's a little bit of confirmation of these things. First of all, one from the Old Testament, the psalmist in Psalm 119, verse 93. He says this, I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have preserved my life. Great words. I will never forget your precepts, for by them 
you have preserved my life. How about a bit of confirmation from the New Testament? Well, let's go to Romans 8 verse 17. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. Get a hold of these verses, take a note of them, jot them down so we can take them with us as we go through the book of Job. Romans eight seventeen. now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. This is why the Lord is worthy of our worship. This is why he took Job to the extremities of human suffering by allowing Satan to withdraw every blessing from him. Look at all of this. Apart from the life that God had given him. This is why God took his son beyond the extremities of suffering to bring the true gospel to us. You know, as we close, here are a few things for us to consider. How would we react as a person who is suffering and how would we react as a comforter to one who is suffering? Well, these are practical questions. You may know from experience that there's no short answer as circumstances would show the need for different approaches. But as we read in the book of Job, as well as seeing the greatness of God and the faithfulness of Job, it's good for us to draw practical lessons from it. Practical lessons that we can apply as we seek to live as the Lord would have us live, so that we and others can be blessed and that God's glory might be seen. Well, this is a good book and there's some good things here for us to take away with us and to think about. Let's just pray. Our Father, we thank you again for this short time you spent around your word, and we just pray that you will help us to understand what is really happening here, and how wonderful it is, but also to realize that we can also draw lessons that we can apply to ourselves, that we might understand more of why there is suffering. And that we might see your hand and your greatness in these troubled times. And we ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, in the meantime, as we leave what is the narrative of the book of Job and embark on the poetic, have a read through Job chapter 3 in preparation for next week. And let's all say... I'm into that.